So how long do you think a song can stay at the number one spot in the charts? Does anybody know the record? It's Mariah Carey, I think. Or Was it? Is it? I think it was, yeah. Uh, Mariah Carey has had the number one hit uh, at the top spot. Uh, I think she had the record. I don't know if recently it's, she's beaten the throne. But how long do you think a song can stay popular uh, at top of the charts? Ten years? That's a long time, right? How about 40? 40 years. Some songs seem to last a long time, but eventually they get dethroned. Deborah's song lasted at the top of the charts for 40 years. But after 40 years, people stopped singing it. <laughs> we read the story last week. It's found in the book of Judges. Turn your Bibles, please. Book of Judges. We are in chapter 6 today. The end of chapter 5 concludes with Deborah's song coming to a close. As I talked to you last week, Deborah was, was this judge, this fantastic woman, uh, a powerful, a mother who rose up in Israel. And by God's grace, called things to life that needed to be called out amongst the people. And she wrote a song about it. Chapter 5 is her song, how, how when she rose up, people followed. And when you follow God, how amazing things can happen. And the Bible tells us at the end of chapter 5 that there was peace in the land for 40 years. That's right. Her song lasted 40 years. But eventually, right? Eventually, things don't last forever. Eventually, the song's popularity ran out. And the people started to listen to other tunes, other things. Read along with me. We're in Judges, the book of Judges, chapter 6, verse 1. If you're there, say amen. amen. Oh, that's not a whole lot. The rest of you guys, what are you doing? Get off Instagram. Uh, stop your Facebook and get to the Bible. We're here to read the Bible. Chapter 6, the book of Judges. We're in the Old Testament today. If you're there... Chapter 6, verse 1, say amen. amen. Okay, a little bit better. Okay, <clears throat> I'm going to read and I want you to follow. Chapter 6, verse 1. And again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. I was fascinated just by that verse, the again. Again, because I think the author kind of rolled his eyes or her eyes when he wrote, oh my gosh, again the Israelites. This is a, a, a thing that happens over and over again. In Israelite history, but it's not unlike us. Have you ever, have you ever tried to change something about yourself? Take up a new habit, maybe. Uh, you know, live healthier, eat better. You, you start, and you can get going for a while, but eventually, you have a tendency to fall back in your ways. Again, start eating them Twinkies. I, I don't know. Do they even make answers anymore? I don't think they do. But whatever your thing is, again, in the Israelites, after 40 years, in the previous cycle... It had lasted for 80 years. 80 years of peace were followed by 20 years of suffering. And after those 20 years, they cried out to God. And now God sends Deborah and she helps them trust God again. And peace reigns for 40 years. But after 40 years, the Bible says that again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. We're going to understand what that means in just a second. But God says, I mean, the Bible says that God gave them over. Just like in the previous cycle, he had sold them out. He gave them over. He let someone else run them over because they had ignored his protections. But unlike what we read last week, this time it wasn't foreigners, Canaanite kings. This time it was a distant cousin, the Midianites. Turns out Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. And one of them was Midian, son by his second or some would say his third wife. And Midian, and he had siblings, Midian had people just like Isaac had people. And 
Isaac eventually Israel and had people. So there was the Israelites and the Midianites. Both of them were initially traveling caravans of people, Bedouins, as it were. But at this time, we find the Israelites trying to settle in in Canaan after God had taken them through these many years in turmoil and, and, and testing their faith, and eventually they're trying to settle in into their promised land. But even there, there are neighboring peoples that give them options and alternatives for how to live a life and who to believe and what to believe. And the Israelites seem to be get, getting caught up in that all the time. This particular time, God withdraws his protection, and it's not a Canaanite king that comes over, but it's Midianites, cousins. And these cousins are really bad. Any of you have cousins like that? Well, let's see if you can identify. This is what these cousins did. The Bible says, chapter 6, verse 2. These Midianites were so oppressive, the Israelites could only run away and hide in the mountains whenever the cousins came around. They would hide out in the caves and in the strongholds to protect themselves from the Midianites. And wherever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites... The Amalekites and other Eastern people invaded their country, and they camped on the land. They ruined the crops. They didn't spare a living thing, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents, and they were like a swarm of locusts. And it was impossible to count their men and their camels, and they evaded the land and ravaged it. And Midian impoverished, so impoverished the Israelites that they finally cried out to the Lord for help. So, Seasonally, these cousins would come over. <laughs> I don't know why this is so funny to me, but it is. Seasonally, these, these relatives, these very distant relatives would come over, and they would just tear through their lands, eat up all their crops, destroy all their stuff. Does anybody have relatives like that? <laughs> they come over and eat all your stuff <laughs> and destroy all your stuff. And then they say, oh, I'll see you next year. Anybody have cousins like that? Well, this is what happens to the Israelites. I don't know why that's so funny to me. They were so bad and so oppressive that the Israelites would run up to hide into the hills and the, and the Midianites would eat up everything. And the Bible says, fascinatingly, that they would destroy every living thing, all the, all the, all the livestock, all the cattle. But what theologians believe is that they didn't destroy the houses. They would leave the property intact. Why? Because they want to come back next year. Right? <laughs> right, cousins? Right? That's what cousins, yeah, we'll see. You. We'll come back next summer <laughs> to take some more. And that's exactly what happened. Year after year, the Israelites would come down from the caves. They would plant. They would harvest. They would work all year long. And these cousins would roll into town and just tear everything like a swarm of locusts. Seven years. You figure after the first couple of years, you tell your cousins, that's no, okay, we'll come to see you, right? You're like, don't come visit us. We'll no, but the Israelites had nowhere else to go, so they would hide and have their stuff destroyed. And the Bible tells us that essentially after, after a while, this repeat, rinse and repeat cycle was so frustrating that they finally decided to turn back to God. So I've been asking myself, what's it going to take for some of us? To return our attention to God. What would it take? For them it was seven years this time. The previous cycle was 20. This time uh, some Bible scholars believe that they were basically out of food. They were desperate. The Midianites would take everything. And, and, and they would have to farm and harvest and, and keep scraps and hide scraps. And it, it, they were just starving. And so they finally cried out to God. 
And the Bible tells us that God heard their cry and he responded. See, the thing is, God is always, always reaching out for us. It's just that we're not always paying attention to him. But sometimes in the middle of difficult circumstances, we finally turn our eyes to the heavens. The Bible says that they finally cried out to the Lord for help, and God responded this way. Verse 7. You've got to read this stuff because you've got to make sure I'm not making it up. Chapter 7. I mean, chapter 6, verse 7. And when the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of, of Midian, he sent them a prophet. Now, if you know Old Testament history, whenever God sends a prophet, it's usually a good thing, but you may not like it. Right? It's usually a good thing, but it might hurt a little. When God sends a message, it's for your benefit, but you may not like it. It's kind of like when your parent sits you down and says, we need to talk, right? They're going to say something to you for your benefit, but you may not like it. You're not going to like it. So God sends a prophet, and this prophet says to the people, read along with me, chapter 6, verse 7. This is what God says, the God of Israel. He says, I brought you out of Egypt. I brought you out of slavery. I um, snatched you from the power of Egypt, from the hand of all of your oppressors, and I drove them out before you, and I even gave you their land. And all I said to you was, I am your God. Don't worship any other gods in whose land you live. But you have not listened to me. And then the prophet went away. I, I, I don't know if you think that's funny or not, but it probably wasn't funny to them. Because they're crying out for God, for help, and God basically says, I told you so. I told you so. God says, I'm the one who's, who's blessed you, who did all these things for you, and all I ask for you is not to worship other gods, but you just don't listen. Now, <clears throat> whenever I'm trying to correct my kids, uh, you know, and I'm saying, hey, you know what my kids say? They're like, yeah, 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 we know. They don't want to hear it. My son, yeah, 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 whatever, I, whatever, Dad. Yes, we know, we know, we know. That's, that's my littlest one, wherever he is. He's, that's him. All I have to say is, Asher, we know, we know, we know. Like, they don't want to hear it, right? The last thing you want, though, I remember this, is to have a parent say, I told you so, right? Mm. So, you know, because I've been there. We would rather not come home with our tail between our legs, right? We're just like, ah, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to come home. I'm not going to bring this. I'm just going to figure it out on my own, yeah? Anybody else with me? You're like, uh-uh, I don't. The last thing I want to do is to hear I told you so. And that's probably what happened in year two, year three, year four, year five, year six. But finally in year seven, they're finally, okay, God. <laughs> God says, I told you so. I find it fascinating, but I don't think it's God just kind of rubbing their faces in it. I think he's making a point here, as we'll see, that you and I need to get our heads around. See, God's answer to their misery, their, their complaints, is kind of repetitive all throughout the Old Testament, and it continues all the way to the end. God says, worship no other gods. See, what I've been saying the first few months of the year here is that at the end of earth's history, worship is a central theme to the plight of human history. The book of Revelation is filled with that particular phrase. Remember Revelation 14, 7, worship God, the one who created the heavens and the earth. All of Revelation 
All of end-time eschatology it has centered around this idea of worship, who you will worship, because worship is an expression of your loyalty to whom you serve. I've been saying it's about kingdoms, and worship is the defining mark of the kingdom to which you belong. Right now, the Israelites are living in Canaan, and they have been brought here by this king and this kingdom, and yet when they live there, they tend to make their allegiance to neighboring kings, neighboring gods. That's the worship concept. So God says, all you needed to understand is that I'm the one who provides for you. But when you continue to look at other sources, this is the result. I told you so. But God doesn't just stop there. His intention isn't just to rub your nose in it. That's, that's never what he wants. What he wants is to grow you, to develop you, to help you come to a new place in your own story. So look at what God does next. Chapter 6, verse 11. And so the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrath that belonged to Joash, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. So God sends this prophet to says it's about worship, but at the same time, he sends his angel to someone in the community. <laughs> and I love it. So the angel kind of comes down and just sits under the tree and just watches this man work. Now, you may not know, but probably do. Uh, you know the story of Gideon. You've probably seen the VeggieTales version. My kids have. It's called Gideon the Great Tuba Warrior. That's right. Um, and, and you know what, what Gideon is going to do. But for a moment here, when God encounters him, he is, by all intents, somebody who should be an important person. If, as we'll read later, he has servants. His father owns a wine press. So, so he, has, he owns a winery. <laughs> and he has servants. He has probably property or did, but right now, rather than being an overseer or, or, or an important person, a statesman, he's a day laborer working in a hole in the ground. See, the wine press was dug out of the ground to, make, to press grapes into wine. It's not where you handle wheat. You need wind. You need air for wind. You would do this out in the open. You thrash in the wheat to get rid of the bad stuff and keep the good stuff. So you would do it out in the open to make use of the wind, wind energy, and, and you would cover a lot of space. But in a wine press, it's a smaller hole, so it's a lot more work. But that's where he is. And the Bible says that he's doing it to hide this food from the Midianites. So he's just a day laborer in a hole, hiding in fear. And that's where the angel appears to him. And the angel says, the Lord is with you. Mighty warrior or mighty man of valor in, in, in some of your versions. And I love that. I've always loved that because at the moment that he arrives, this is a, this is not a mighty, <laughs> he's not a mighty, he's not a warrior, he's just, he's a day laborer. He's just working with wheat and in a hole in the ground, no less. But the angel comes and says, God is with you. You're a mighty warrior. See, God sees always what you cannot yet see. God sees who you are meant to become long before you become. God sees what he designed and intended for you long before it's a reality. And what he always does, listen to me, is he addresses you and treats you as if you already were who you are on your way to being. God honors you 
long before you're worthy of any honoring. And that's what he's doing here. And so he calls Gideon a mighty warrior. Of course, Gideon doesn't see that. All he can see is his situation, his circumstances, what's happening in his life. He's in a hole in the ground. He should be somewhere else. He should be governing the city or being an important person. But, but there, here he is. And so his answer is not unlike ours. His answer is, if God is with us, but sir, if God is with us, then why has all this stuff happened to us? Where are all the wonders that our fathers used to talk about when they said, didn't God bring us out of Egypt? But now God has abandoned us and he has left us in the hands of the Midianites. I find in that response an echo of the sentiments that I hear in our church community all the time and in our present. And things that I'm tempted to say on my own in my own life. If God is really with me, then why is this happening to me? Right? Anybody else? If God is with us, why does it feel like we're abandoned on our own here? Why is my marriage falling apart? I had to lose my job. Where are my kids? So messed up. If God is with us, why is this happening? Where are all the miracles? It's almost as if he's mocking God in the same way that we look and read the Bible and we sort of scoff at it and say, yeah, yeah, sure, sure, whatever. That was back then. It's just now. If God is real now, how come I'm in the mess I'm in? Why does God let this happen? Where are the miracles? See, I think we all want miracles, right? We all want God to change circumstances. Right now, right now. You're in the middle of something that you can't fix. You've tried. I don't know what it is. Could be a personal situation. Could be a relationship. Something, a financial mess. And you just want God to swoop in and change it, right? You want God to deliver. And, we're, and you've been praying. You've been saying. You've been coming to church. It's okay. If I do this, you, maybe you've been negotiating with God. Okay, God, if you get me out of this one, here's what I'm going to do. Okay, that didn't work. Okay, I'm going to start first. I'm going to get up and read my Bible, and then you're going to fix this. We want God to change the circumstances, right? We want miracles. And in the absence of miracles, our temptation, our next reaction is to say, then God isn't around. He has abandoned me. He has left me. He's nowhere to be found. You can look around your world and your community, your family, your life, and you say, I feel abandoned. Or else why would I be in this mess? If God is with us, why is this happening? Where are the miracles? Where are the wonders? And you know what God's answer to that is? The Lord turned to him and said, you. I'm sending you. You're the miracle. I'm sending you. But sir... Where is God? Where are the miracles? Why is this happening? How's, how are we going to get over this? And, and the angel says, you. I'm sending you. Go in the strength that you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Go in the strength that you have and save Israel. You are the miracle. 
See, for so long, maybe you've been waiting around for God to send somebody to fix your situation when God has sent you to fix the situation. You're the miracle. Maybe not necessarily in your life, but maybe in the life of somebody else. For, for, for Gideon, it was his life. He was in a hole. And God says, I'm sending you. You're the miracle. Now, I know you're looking at me like, what? That makes no sense. But that's exactly what's happening. And you know what's fascinating here? God comes to Gideon and he says, you're a mighty man when he's not presently. And then he says, go in the strength that you have. All the sum of your abilities as a human being, I want you to go like that. Because most of us pray, okay, well, if I'm going to do something for God, you better send. I know I feel that way. Better send extra power. But God is saying here to Gideon, go just as you are in the strength that you already have. You are the miracle. We have to realize, friends, that you and I are the difference makers in the strength that you already have. We've got to stop wishing for someone to come in and fix it when God sent you already to your family, to your job, to your business. You are the answer. What? It's not what we've been trained to think, but it's what the Bible says and the message that he has given me to tell you today. You are the change maker. Gideon doesn't believe it. I know you don't either because there were no amens. <laughs> but Gideon says, uh, how can I, verse 15, how can I save Israel? What can I do to fix this situation? How can I save Israel when I am uh, from the smallest clan and, and I am the, 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 the least in my family? But, but God, how can I fix, what can I do about this? I don't have the background, the experience, the pedigree. I don't have any support. I am not enough. I'm the least qualified. I'm the least important. I'm the least influential. I know that's what you're thinking when I say you're the answer. But what can I do? What am I supposed to do about these situations? What can I do? I'm the least. I don't have any training. I don't have any resources. Nobody supports me. I'm the least qualified. And God's answer to Gideon is the same answer it is for you. God says, verse 16, I will be with you and you will strike down the Midianites. God's answer is simple. I will be with you and you will. And you will. Listen, I know some of you guys are thinking today, I don't know how I'm going to, and I don't know how you fill in the rest of that blank. I don't know how I'm going to Fix my marriage. I don't know. I don't know how I'm going to get over this scenario. I don't know how I'm going to put things back together. I don't know. But God's answer is there. I will be with you and you will. And you just need to claim that for yourself today. You're the difference maker. God will be with me and I will. Go ahead, say it. Say it to yourself, even if it's under your breath or in your mind. God will be with me. And I will, and then finish the sentence with whatever the hurdle is that you're trying to overcome. Because God is sending you. God is sending you. God says, I will be with you, and you will strike down the Midianites. Now, at this point, Gideon is a little bit worried. This man is speaking with conviction. He doesn't know yet, but suddenly he thinks, wait a minute. 
something is happening here. And Gideon says, okay, listen, if I found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that, that it is really you, God, that is talking to me. Please don't go away until I come back and I prepare something to worship you, an offering. And he takes the next few hours to go and prepare an actual offering and brings it back. And listen what the angel says. The angel says, I will wait. I will wait for you. Gideon is trying to find affirmation, confirmation. So I'm, I'm not quite sure, but God says, I'll patiently wait until you're ready. But you got to know that I am sending you, and I'm going to prove it to you. And, and, and so he goes and prepares this meal, and he comes back to worship. And the angel is there, and, and he says he offers it. And the angel touches it and catches fire. And then, and then Gideon realizes he's been talking to God. And in that moment, he's like, oh, no, I've seen God face to face. I'm going to die. And the angel says, don't be afraid. You are not going to die. And so Gideon builds an altar there because he says in this moment, he, he takes an action to reflect the intention of his heart that he's pledging his allegiance to this God. The one he was doubting just a few minutes ago, a few hours ago. So he says, I'm going to take an action to cement my decision to honor you, my allegiance. And thus he creates an altar. And I want you to read this with me. And then God says to him, okay, you, it, you'll get it. It's me. I'm talking to you. And he says, now, Lord said to him, you're not going to die, but I want you to do something. Verse 25, that same night, God said to him, take the second bowl. Before you finish bringing your offering, before you finish that praise song, before you finish that, take that second bowl from your father's herd, the seven-year-old one, and go back home and tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on top of that one. And use the wood from that wicked altar and build it for the right one. And the Bible says that Gideon took ten of his servants. I told you he was important. He had people. And he did that. See, God invites you to believe in your own future. And that fact that he's sending you to be a difference maker. But if you're going to do that, you're going to have to take some action. That same night, God says, tear down your father's altar to Baal. See, friends, God needs us to take action. You're going to have to make a move if you're going to be the difference maker that God designed you to be. Are you listening? I don't think so. See, because I think, I think you're like the rest of us seven years in. We just keep doing the same thing, hoping for a different result. And we have come to a place in our spirituality where we're just, just stagnant. You're just showing up. You're like, oh, I don't know, whatever. I don't even know what it means anymore. I'm just going to go because I do. But if you want something different in your life, it means you're going to have to make a stand. You're going to have to make a statement of your faith. And God says to Gideon here, it's not the altar that you build for me. It's the altar that you tear down that will be your statement of faith. Listen, listen, listen. Some of you need to hear this today. There's an altar to Baal in your house that's got to get torn down if you're going to be the difference maker that God intends for you to be. You've been asking yourself, I don't know why my family is this mess because you got an altar right in the living room. I don't know why marriage is because you've got an altar right in between your relationship. You are making your allegiance, you're paying your worship, your attention, your focus to something else. Gideon's dad had an altar to Baal. These were Israelites. For 40 years they were singing Deborah's song, but in these last seven years he had erected, built his allegiance to a different king. Listen, I don't know what your altar is. 
But it's about worship. It's about what you give your allegiance to, what you give your attention to. You know, uh, Mark Batterson says in his book, All In, he says, if you want to know what your altar is, <laughs> he says, check your bank statement. It doesn't lie. It is a statement of faith because it reveals your true priorities. Go ahead. Check your bank statement, your credit card statement. What you spend your most time and money on, that's your God. That's your altar. It's the thing that is most precious to you. And his question in this book is, do you love Jesus more than your most precious possession? Would you love Jesus more than the most precious person in your life? Or your deepest desire? More than your greatest goal or your most significant achievement? See, God comes to Gideon right now and he says, I'm sending you. You are going to make the difference. And you guys know the story. You know what's going to take place. But before that can take place, Gideon must make a statement of his faith. And for him, the statement was to tear down the altar in his dad's living room. Gideon goes at night because the Bible says he's afraid of his, of his family, right? Come on, <laughs> you're going to start in your family, you're asking for trouble, right? If you're going to try to reclaim your family for God, you're going to meet some opposition. But maybe that's the statement that you need to make. Maybe that's the thing that needs to come down before God can rise up in your family and in your house. You've been asking for a change. You've been asking for a different, right? You've been saying, God, deliver me from these circumstances. And God says, I am. I'm going to use you, and you've got to tear down the altar. Listen, I've been fascinated by this story because it seems like the Israelites, one generation after the next, keeps doing the same thing. But I think it's because whenever God blesses us, we have a tendency to ignore how badly we need him, and we put our focus on things that are more interesting. You know what the challenge is with our culture and, our, and the current generation that's growing up right now? It's how many things exist to keep our minds interested. You know what the greatest challenge for a seven or eight-year-old is right now? Boredom. They do not know or cannot be bored because we have taught them that they must be constantly entertained, right? And you know why? Because we are doing the same thing. I'm looking at you right now, and you're swiping. You come to church, but you spend your time on Instagram. I know because I see you. And you post, and you tweet, and you text me during church. Look, if you can't focus your attention on God, your altar is in the palm of your hand, and your kids are learning that. And what do you think is going to happen? The same thing that happened to you. They're going to end up in the same mess. God says, you are the difference. But if you're going to be the difference maker, you've got to tear down that altar. So what is it for you today? What is it that's got to get torn down? You know, God gave us some amazing things. I'm just going to be honest with you. The Sabbath day was supposed to be a day for break from all that stuff. How every day of every week you go to bed and you're so busy thinking you just want to medicate yourself with some Netflix or Facebook? Yes, yes. Well, Saturday was the day you were supposed to not medicate, self-medicate, but to let God feel you, right? And you know how? By doing something different, by taking a pause to that stuff. 
and resting in the goodness and delight of God amongst his community, in his nature. But are you willing to do that? Or are you literally hitting the pause button for just the hour or two that you're here? And the second that you leave this place, so maybe while you're looking at me right now, you're like, I can't wait. Or maybe it's spending money or working. You can't wait to get home, to get back to work, back to your spreadsheets. I don't know what you do. Whatever it is that you do. See what I mean? What is your altar? The thing that you're spending your most, the thing that has your attention. That's your altar. And would you give that up for God? Because if you don't, listen, you're bound to stay in the same scenario. It's nobody going to come rescue you. You keep asking God to come and deliver you, but he sent you to deliver. The keys of the kingdom, Jesus says, I leave with you. I'm going there, but you will do greater things if you believe. But to believe, you've got to make a statement of your faith. Listen, listen, listen to me. You need to take an action. You've got to make a move. If you do not, you can't expect anything different to happen in your life. Maybe you need to put something down or maybe you need to take something up. If you want to change in your life, if you're wondering why is this, why, if you want to change, you've got to take an action of faith. You've got to make a statement of faith. And in this moment, Gideon is tasked with taking down an altar in his father's house. And he does that. Yes, he's afraid. He does it at night. But he does it. The next day they come asking. And they're like, who did this? Who did this? And his dad stands up for him and he says, well, if Baal can't defend himself, then maybe he's not a god. And you know what's going to happen next. That same day laborer is going to destroy all the Midianites and the Amalekites and whoever else they got running with them with a tuba. That's right, with a tuba. Why? Not because he was a great tuba player. Because he had this great plan, but because he took action on God's call of faith. You are a mighty warrior. You are a mighty warrior. You are a person of courage and of strength. You are a difference maker. You are a change maker. Start today. Do something different. Take down the altar that does not belong to God. And God will reward that statement of faith with the miracles that you're asking I believe that. And I have been convicted that I needed to do that in my own life. You know what the truth is? you got to wake up. I've been choosing this. Wake up in the morning and just say, no, I'm, I'm getting out of my grave today. And I've got to make a choice to act upon what God has called me to be, who God has called me to be and how to live. As the worship team comes and joins me on the stage, I'm going to challenge you. You're asking for change. God says you are the change. But you need to make your statement of faith. The bolder, the better. What is that going to be, friends? What is that going to be? Maybe you, some of you got to give money away. Some of you got to give money away. Some of you got to quit your job. Some of you got to break up that relationship. I don't know what it is, but there's something that's holding you back. And while you're in the trenches of that, you cannot become the warrior God destined you to be, but you're supposed to be. And God sees you as that, and he honors you as such. But you got to make a statement of faith. What will it be? What's it going to be for you today? I hope you're tired of the same old, same old. I hope you've had enough of your cousins coming in and ransacking everything. I hope you're tired of that. I hope you want to change. 
And I hope you're willing to do what God is asking. I don't know what it is for you, but I know what he's asking. And I know he's asking because it's an echo that you're going to hear. When you leave this place, I've been praying that the Holy Spirit would just bombard you with the thought. This is the thing that's got to change. This one thing, start here. You're not going to fix everything overnight, but take this altar down. Take this altar down. Do it today. That same night, Gideon took the altar down, and God delivered not just his family, but his people, the entire nation. And he can do the same for you, for us. But you've got to do your first statement, the statement of your faith. Will you do it? Will you love God more than anything else in the world? That's the only way out, friends. That's the only way out. And I'm praying, I'm begging that you will, just as I'm asking for the courage to do it in my life. Let's stand and praise God together.